my name is Damian Rogers, the poetry editor at House of Anansi Press. Welcome to the first Anansi Poetry Podcast, a new series of conversations with Anansi poets. For our first episode, I chatted with the lovely and brilliant A.F. Moritz, Al to his many friends. We met at the Royal Ontario Museum, where he spends a lot of time when not teaching next door at the University of Toronto. His 17th book of poetry, Sequence, is just out this month, and you can hear his excitement when I hand him his copy for the first time. It was spring break, so you might also hear the chirping of children in the background. Al spoke with great enthusiasm and authority on a wide range of subjects, from Borges to cyberpunk. Al's poetry has won numerous awards, including the Griffin Poetry Prize. I'm going to read an untitled excerpt from Sequence, which is a book-length poem, to begin. It's in the dead of night only that you wake up. In the dark between the star and the sun, night exhausted, dawn not yet. Only then is attention real, godlike. Then it sees how far it is from being God. It sees in a darkness blacker than the young night's beautiful color, known at last now in nostalgia, a blackness darker than light in pure space. Then you recognize the journey in which your bed is an evening's pause. It's the house of this moment in which the journey is a dream. piece out when we first oh, got yeah. here and since we're walking right past it. Yes, it's true. These are wonderful and it's a Sanufo. I just got done reading a sci-fi novel by Arthur Clarke, uh, co-written by some other guy uh -huh. um, uh, called um, Rama Returns or something like that. It's about this huge mysterious spaceship, Rama 2 is called. He wrote a book called Rendezvous with Rama about this huge mysterious spaceship that comes into the uh, solar system, gets investigated by human beings who just have uh, uh, solar system-wide space flight at this time. Anyway, the woman who turns out to be one of the two major characters is French, but she's partly Sanufo, oh, just like the people so. that this sculpture came from. It's funny, I think science fiction is, although sometimes it's not, it's hard to find examples of the finest prose styles in, yeah. in science fiction. I think some really interesting thinking happens in those books. Well, what drew, drew you to well, when reading I was, it the When place? I was a kid, I was just um, a voracious reader of science fiction, mm -hmm. amongst many other things. I wouldn't say it was the main thing I read by any means, but I read lots of science fiction, and I guess I just sort of outgrew it. But I keep going back to one thing or another now and then. And my wife, Teresa, is also very, very interested in it and even teaches a course about it for first-year students at the University of Toronto together with another professor who's also a fan of, of sci-fi. And of course, they bring in everything from video games to TV series and movies, you know. So they do, it's, if Arthur C. Clarke, they do 2001 Space Odyssey, for instance, you know. So they do all kinds of things. But, uh, you know, I, uh, in one of my courses, I teach a book I dearly love, which is a heavy, heavy book, The Human Condition by Hannah Arendt. Mm. And she, it, right in the preface of that book, she says, and we're talking about 1956, I believe, when this book was written, um, 
you know, lamentably, philosophers and critics haven't paid enough attention to the very significant phenomenon of science fiction. I agree. And her book is all about um, us thoughtlessly tending to create our future. And of course, she feels that, you know, ham-fisted as much science fiction may be from a literary point of view, it's, it reflects that. There's this war amongst genres, right? So, it, you know, it's not true of everybody, but somebody who likes romances doesn't like science fiction, and somebody who sure. likes westerns doesn't like romances, and especially somebody who likes literary fiction doesn't respect these, the genres too much unless they're redone as part of um, something uh, literary, mm -hmm. and they're, they're specifically absorbed and transcended by a Borges or a, you know, you know, Pynchon or something like this. Uh, now, those writers often have real respect for the authors, but the audience doesn't tend to. But I think that, um, as a matter of fact, you see so many recent serious novelists like Pynchon, like Doris Lessing, like I Ishiguro, and so on, y using science fiction. Uh, in our own country, uh, Margaret Atwood. And really using it, 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 it shows they began to understand that the conventions of literary fiction, literary fiction just isn't wide open. It may be hard to define its conventions or limitations, self-imposed, but it has them. Absolutely. And, by, and the nature of them was it could not address many of the things that are most worrying people. How could literary fiction traditionally conceived address genetic engineering mm -hmm. or the cyborg or, uh, you know, mind control methods that get ever more worrisome, you know, which is something very interesting because poetry has always been able to address it and has been right there. I've addressed it back to the 70s. Um, Ken Badstock's recent book, Karen mm -hmm. Soli's book that's launching with me, have very important dimensions of, of this kind. Yeah, well, to ignore the role that technology plays in our lives currently, yeah. I think, is absurd, you know, to not think about and to not look forward yeah. is essentially so, well, it, you again, know, it's a, it's a self-imposed limit. Yeah, another, uh, something I like about uh, um, contemporary science fiction, well, I guess it's a little old hat now, but it, you always have too much to read, and I must say, to my shame, I have never yet gotten around to reading one word by William Gibson, but mm. I know a lot about him, yes. you know, and so I, and then, and I've, so I know the concept of cyberpunk, you know, mm -hmm. pretty well, and there's, I've seen many things like, that are easier to absorb than reading a whole long book like Mad Max or something, lots of movies that are basically cyberpunk. So um, I thought to myself, that has a lot of commonality with my poetry. Absolutely, my yeah. poetry is filled with images of people sort of living semi-bewilderedly in the ruins or the remnants of, of the technology of our time that's still around them and they can still partly manipulate but they don't really understand it. Uh, they can't rebuild and I, I do regard this as a real prophecy of a, a likely or a possible future, you know. So I thought when I heard 
heard about Gibson, I thought, you know, um, sort of right on, as we used to say in the 60s. <laughs> I, I really recognize what you're doing here. Well, what is interesting is when we were first looking at these pieces and you, uh, you, you brought up that character, uh, is that idea of connecting traditional knowledge uh, with looking towards the future and uh, the actual ceremony of a walkabout mm -hmm. or some sort of journey yeah. seems uh, quite connected to sequence. Well, you know, I wouldn't have thought of that myself, <laughs> but you're right. You know, it is a it is a walkabout through the jungle. I must say, here's something else to my shame. I've never read the novel that Nicholas Roig's film Walkabout mm. is based upon, and I should have done that, but I love that film. To me, that's one of the very few five-star movies in the history of the cinema. I really, really like that film, and it mesmerized me the first time I saw it. Uh, so I think the walkabout, in, in the little I know of it, for instance, through that film, is um, an important component for me of the very, you know, universal and ancient idea of the journey and the journey of self-discovery and so on. So, yeah, I think in sequence you go on a journey, mm -hmm. you keep having various memories, visions, you know, mirages in the desert, if you will. And um, uh, so you, you live through these at night, you fall asleep and dream. It's overpoweringly hot in the day and overpoweringly frigid at night. Mm -hmm. And um, you're walking along and you hear the stones crack and explode and the heat and you wonder what that is. And, um, you know, eventually you sort of get somewhere, but um, it's, um, let's say, I think the essential getting somewhere mm -hmm. is that the character starts out, he's supposed to be the human person, right? You know, you or me, every man, everybody, every, every man and woman. And um, he feels old and sluggish and tired at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And by the end, He's about a five-year-old child who just can't wait to get outside in the morning and run down to the stream bank and enjoy the cool, dewy freshness of the, of the summer day, you know. So um, that's sort of the shape of the journey, right? Yeah, well, and I also think the choice of, a se of sequence, of pattern, and of the isolated these moments that throughout, instead of, you know, it's one long poem, but it is broken into these moments. And one of the lines that really shot out at me when I was rereading it last night um, was uh, the house of the moment. Mm -hmm. The house of this moment. The house yeah. of this moment. Yeah. Which I, I just think is, is so packed with exactly what I love in all of your work, but in particularly in, in this book, this timelessness of the present and mm -hmm. uh, through extremely careful observation, how we're kind of released in that, that notion of freedom. I mean, there's another couple of lines where, um, I don't have the book in front of me, uh, but where uh, there's that, that contradiction between the idea of freedom being uh, w being separated from the body, being without a body, and mm -hmm. freedom, be that, that the fire, in order to find freedom, became a man. 
Uh, yeah. And I, I just think yeah. that's lovely, that, that tension between these two ideals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to me that's indeed um, central. I, I suppose what you think of if you write and you're very dedicated and you try to make each poem definitive and complete in itself, and yet you realize you have a, at least a little humility and you realize no, no more than anybody in the past are you going to solve the human mystery. So whatever you've done, um, both it's not aesthetically perfect or complete and it's not philosophically or religiously um, complete either. As soon as you're done being either satisfied with it or sort of exhausted trying to make it as good as you can and you, you've rested up, you realize it simply suggests something else, something beyond it, something it wasn't. And that's really very similar to every step we take, you know, and um, every breath we take. And um, to use the step or the breath for metaphors of everything we do, you know. Um, so, but what you say about the eternal moment is really important to me. I think that modern art and especially poetry probably, which it can be so philosophical, mm -hmm. the, has really taken the idea of the eternal moment as an important quest, you know, and it can be defined in many, many ways, but many people have uh, sought it. Um, now, I used to basically just pour scorn on this. I thought of my work as a as a literature in itself, completely separate from and against all the developments from modernism, Pound and Eliot and so on to the present. Now I'm a little bit more humble about right. <laughs> that. But, um, but um, I, I still feel that the whole idea of the eternal moment is, is very questionable. But this book does try to interrogate it. And um, so, if I could say one more thing, the whole idea behind sequence was to be a complete life and a complete poem, mm -hmm. but it was to be broken down into little moments that are just each, you know, there's a few that go on to two pages, maybe five or six. There's a few that are maybe another five or six that are a whole page long, but most of them are just like 12 lines or something like this. And they're each moments, they're each a day or a moment of thought or something like that. And so they're complete in themselves. And yet, no, they're also um, parts of a life or parts mm -hmm. of a journey. Now you, you think to yourself, um, isn't this moment that we're having complete? Or isn't one day complete? And yet you wake up and you went to sleep before, there's strange uh, shades drawn, strange divisions between them. So they're whole and they're not whole. And one thing you could say for sure is that the one wouldn't exist without the others. If you hadn't had the, all the days before, you wouldn't be here. Similarly, if you weren't going to have the day tomorrow, you wouldn't be here, right? So, um, um, 
so that kind of mystery um, is partly what it's about. Uh, yeah, so. No, well, and I think that part of what I was thinking about, too, about the timelessness, and part of the reason it made a lot of sense to me that the ROM was a good place to meet, uh, and that you spend a lot of time here, which I'd love to hear more about, but is that I think throughout all your work, and, and definitely in sequence, there is a, a great presence of the past within the moment, mm -hmm. uh, within the present moment. And uh, as you said, like there, there, every moment has a whole quality that, that contains within it every moment that has proceeded up until this present moment and probably is connected forward into the future. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. so, you know, the, the way that the poem arcs through, you know, these, these many moments that become a complete life and, and within moments that where the past is, is relived through story and through narrative mm -hmm. and, and through sort of the reconstruction of, mm -hmm. and, and particularly one thing I was thinking about that was really beautiful is how quickly the voice of the poem can move from, say, uh, a very little contemporaneous moment of looking, watching uh, trucks mm -hmm. coming by to, you know, mm -hmm. within the city streets and, you know, bringing food to, to grocery stores or whatever cargo they're carrying, uh, connecting that back to caravans, you know, mm -hmm. and to, to this timeless image of the desert, but then, but then also connecting it back to a, a teenage boy in Babylon, mm -hmm. you know, who's humming with this excitement of life and mm -hmm. this energy and, mm -hmm. and sort of lust and, and mm -hmm. uh, adolescent desire and, mm -hmm. and just that like that peaking of physical life, of mm -hmm. animal life within us. Yeah. Uh, and that they, they all sort of exist within this actually quite short sequence of words is mm -hmm. remarkable. Um, and I think it has a lot to do with the, your relationship and deep, deep uh, interest and passion for understanding history and, and its many, many forms. Uh, yeah. And so, so when you say that you come to the realm a lot, like what, what, what's, your, what's your practice? Do you come here and write or do you well, just come and meditate on some of the objects? I, some, I come sometimes to think I will just sit down and contemplate and maybe write. And I'm, it must say it has, it has not never happened, <laughs> but it rarely <laughs> happens because either the school groups push me along mm -hmm. or else I get so interested in something that I'm just following my nose or I find that my time has run out and of I course. have to leave. But yeah, I, I do have the idea. Well, I, I have the practice of um, writing while going around. You know, just like Whitman, you know, mm -hmm. always wrote on scraps of paper. And when I found this out, having about from reading a biography, I felt, you know, even closer, if that's possible, to Whitman. And so, um, so yeah, I come to places like this as well as sitting under trees or going into fast food restaurants or just poking my nose into mm -hmm. anything I can around the city when I have the time for it to see what people are doing, but also to be uh, a little bit um, 
separate and yet with people, right? Um, um, alone but never lonely, that's what I like to be, says Marie McLaughlin, right? <laughs> so if I have fun like a rock and roll bum, don't think the less of me, right? right? That's, what, that's me to a T, I would see. <laughs> and so, um, you know, that's one part. There's other parts when, you know, the sort of white heat of finishing and, and something, uh, just, uh, you know, there's always inspiration in these little moments, but there's also kind of inspiration that just says to you, now it's all got to be fused and it's got to be spread out. And then like some insane businessman, you're working, you know, 14 hours a day, seven days a week for two months in a row. That's another kind of compensation. And those moments hit me too and are a great an annoyance to my family <laughs> so on. but I love to just go around and write and um, you know I think one meaning of my poetry is that the that is the stupidity of the human uh, division between um, the intellectual and the emotional the intellectual and the non-intellectual um, you know if you think to yourself I shouldn't think because I'm going to live and not thinking is going to help me live. All you're doing is forcing yourself to live by an, a, a certain philosophical idea and one of the stupidest, you know. <laughs> yeah, so um, it's not that intellectualism can't get to a diseased state where it does uh, uh, prevent you living. Yes, it can, but so too with everything. Everything can be exaggerated or done wrong, you know. So. Uh, and so in a way, that, though I don't like to take it too far, um, that also tends to suggest let's not separate culture and nature really um, uh, explicitly or, or dramatically, and let's not separate high and low too dramatically. If, you know, if you've got a stick, it makes a lot of sense to say it's got a left end and a right end, those are separate things, and that, that's a true thing to say. But on the other hand, they're part of one stick. And really, where can you say one ends and the other begins? So both ways are a true way to look at it. What it points to is the fact, you know, the, the, why we need poetry. The chief element, and I wrote a poem to this effect when, you know, in my early years, it, the chief thing I think poetry is, its basics, basis, is melody, it's, mm -hmm. it's music, um, and um, just like music, uh, it depends on and exalts repetition with variation, well so do all the arts, but music you could say is the most poverty stricken and thus most essential of the arts because all it has is sound mm -hmm. and if you just make a bunch of sounds with no relation to each other you, it just falls apart and if you repeat too often you just have a machine clunking in the night it's dull so you have to think of structures of repetition with variation and that's melody so you've got rhythm but with constant surprise. Mm -hmm. And I find that this thing, this part, is intimately linked to emotion. So I would say 
yeah, I, I love that people see I'm a very imagistic poet, and I love to see they, that I have a philosophy, or I'm groping for a philosophy, and so forth, or that I'm erudite, or whatever. I, there's a lot of history and knowledge in the poems. But really, most important to me is melody and emotion. All right, I have one more task for you before I let you go, but I also have a present for you. Oh. Which I didn't mean to dramatically leave to the end. Oh, but wow! <laughs> your book. This is amazing. It's beautiful, don't you think? Oh, I do. I knew it was going to be beautiful because you've shown me, uh, and Nancy has shown me right along, the stages of developing the cover and the print and, and everything. But just to see it and hold it in your hand, it's... Uh, miraculous it's beautiful and, well, and it reads differently it's funny how I mean I've uh, read it a few times already but in manuscript form but to read it on the page and Kotos does such a gorgeous job with the printing oh it's the truth know. it looks lovely oh, I'm very excited and so Thank I have you. my own copy with me wow and a little dog-eared well I'm gonna put this one down because I'm yeah. holding too many I know things. there's a lot of cords to negotiate <laughs> Um, but if you could read this, uh, this has the line uh, that I, that, I don't know, that it was sort of guiding me when I was thinking sure. about talking okay. today. Okay, good. Well, you know what? Before we started out, mm -hmm. I had Xeroxed five um, uh, uh, pages out of the uh, out of the proofs because I thought you might want me to okay. read something, and I had a choice, and this was one of them. Oh well, that's so, great. Uh, great minds think alike, I feel as they very say. Happy about that. All right. So, so I'll read this um, section, which is one of the pages from part one. Okay. It's in the dead of night only that you wake up, in the dark between the stars and the sun, night exhausted, dawn not yet. Only then is attention real, godlike. Then it sees how far it is from being God. It sees in a darkness blacker than the young night's beautiful color, known at last now in nostalgia, a blackness darker than light in pure space. Then you recognize the journey in which your bed is an evening's pause. It's the house of this moment in which the journey is a dream. Beautiful. This podcast was brought to you by House of Anansi Press. To learn more about our authors, visit us at houseofanansi.ca.